The title of today's message is Snatched Away, and we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Over the last several weeks, if you've been here or been listening to the podcast, we've been going over what the Bible has to say about the times we're living in in reference to what is going on overseas, particularly in Israel. And if you've missed any of those messages, I encourage you, go back to the podcast uh, listed on the back of your bulletins and catch up. You'll get a lot of perspective from the Bible about what is going on today. I don't know if you realize this, but God's already told us what's about to happen. It's all in the Bible. So I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to those messages. Today we're going to be reading about an event that is called the rapture. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you have probably heard a dozen sermons on this topic. In fact, I taught about it a few years ago in 2019 when we did our Christianity 101 series about the basics of the Christian faith. If you were here, it's not the same message. Don't worry, I wrote an entirely different message so you don't get to tune out. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you to really pay attention because today this topic is very urgent. As we look at the world that seems to be spinning out of control, the events and the events going on in Israel, we're all wondering how much time we have left before the events of Revelation really begin to kick off. One of those events that kicks off around this time is this thing in the Christian church that we call the rapture. Now, we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. The Bible is purposely vague. Jesus, in fact, said that he didn't even know while he was here in his earthly body, but only the Father knew that when that was about to happen. So today, we're going to be studying what many of the churches, many in the church have called the blessed hope, that there will be a generation that never experiences death, but gets caught up directly to heaven. So again, turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible or you need help getting a Bible, please let me know. We will get you a Bible. It is critically important in these last days that you have your own Bible. There are a ton of false teachings out there. So you need to be able to check for yourself what they are teaching to make sure it's actually what God says in his word. Because there's a lot of junk out there right now. Not only that, but sooner or later, the Bible is going to be illegal to own. The Bible actually predicts that. Or it's going to be changed to the point where you won't be able to get an accurate translation. So get now while the getting's good. And again, come to me personally, shoot me an email, give me a call, text, or whatever, and we will make sure you get a good Bible. So... Let's go to the Bible this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, talking about this event called the rapture. Verse 13 says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the encouragement we find in your word. And I thank you, Lord, especially for this encouragement. Father, as we study this today, help us to help this to become our blessed hope. Help this to become the thing we are looking for. Help this to become the thing that makes us look up to heaven and wait for that trumpet to sound, Lord. Help us to be ready for that glorious moment that is coming, Father. Lord God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I like this scripture. I really like this scripture. It's been the hope of the church for almost 2,000 years. In fact, it was so much the hope of the church, early Christians would often greet each other with the phrase Maranatha, which means come quickly. They would say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to be with you. Now, this word rapture that we use to describe this event, it doesn't actually appear in the Bible. It's kind of like Trinity. It's a, it's a word that we assigned to a, a truth within God's word. Now, the word rapture is a Latin translation of the Greek word that means to snatch away. It means to grab something and pull it quickly away from danger. And, it's, and the church began to use it to describe Jesus coming back to get his church. And today we're going to look to see what the Bible has to say about this event by looking at three different facets that inform us about the rapture. The first thing we're going to look at today is a couple examples of people from the Old Testament who were caught up to heaven without dying. The second will be the why of the rapture. Why does Jesus come and remove his church from the world? And then in the end, we'll be looking at the who. Who will be those who meet Jesus in the air? So let's begin with the biblical examples. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. And tucked in the middle of a genealogy that many of us, when we're reading our Bibles, we see that this person begat this person and that person begat this person. We kind of just kind of gloss over that a little bit, kind of speed read through those kind of chapters. But found in the middle of one of those genealogies is the first example of someone who experienced his own personal rapture. Somebody who was taken to heaven directly without experiencing death. And you see this in Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 21, talking about a man named Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Now look what it says. Then he was no more because God took him away. Now the Bible says here that Enoch was taken away by God. Remember the term rapture means to snatch or take away. In the Hebrew language, this very specific phrase, or phrase excuse me, is very important 
because of how it's used elsewhere in the Bible, particularly in the book of Genesis. Now, this, this Hebrew phrase, again, it means to quickly and urgently take somebody away with a sense of, of moving them away from danger. It's kind of like if you were taking a walk with somebody you loved and you're walking down the sidewalk and ahead of you a car suddenly swerves and starts heading towards you and you grab that person and snatch them out of the way of that oncoming car. That's, that's the urgency that is being expressed through this phrase in the Hebrew. And this same phrase is used later in Genesis when the angels are telling Lot to take his family out of Sodom right now. Snatch them out of there. Get them out of there because God is about to lay waste to this city. It's meant to convey that sense of danger and urgency that is to be avoid, that we want to get them out of danger. And you may ask, well, what is God saving Enoch from? The Bible doesn't seem to say that there was anything going on in that time. But if you look at the New Testament book of Jude, it hints that something is happening here. Jude is just simply one chapter. So this is Jude, verse 14, first chapter, the only chapter. It says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. Now, when we read the Bible, we want to make sure we see who that they're talking about when they're using these kind of words like they and them and, and we and, and all these kind of things. You want, to, you want to make sure you know who the them is. Well, who is them? A few weeks ago, we read in Genesis 6 that God looked down upon the earth and saw that everyone was filled with violence. And we discovered how the Hebrew word for violence in that particular um, verse is the, actually the Hebrew word Hamas. Heard about Hamas in the, in the news lately? It's a, it's a, actually, Hamas is an Arabic acronym for that, the Islamic Revolutionary Army, I believe it, it stands for. Um, but it also has um, um, a meaning in Hebrew, which means a brutal, unwarranted, and evil violence. Something that comes directly from the pit of hell. These were the same people who were beginning to come into power and beginning to come um, into the vast majority of the people who are living in Enoch's day. So that's who them are in this verse. Continuing on in Jude, it says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Now it seems there was some kind of judgment that was coming during Enoch's time. So God removed him before that judgment would take place. And God uses those that he calls as prophets in very unique ways. It's very possible that even though this was several hundred years before the event happened, that God was using Enoch to foreshadow the flood that was coming. That God is going to snatch away the righteous, and God was giving the world, and the, and the time he was living in, giving them a foreshadowing of what was coming through Enoch. That God was going to snatch away the righteous, or Noah's family, into the ark, and allow the evil people left behind to suffer God's wrath that we saw in the flood. We can't be absolutely sure. The Bible isn't absolutely 
um, literal on this, on this subject, but that's my take on it. So the first reason that God snatches the righteous away is to save them from suffering wrath, particularly the kinds of violence, or particularly against those committing the kind of violence not seen until right before the flood. And the biblical principle that we see this is, in, is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, where it says that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. He doesn't want wrath for his children. He wants us to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's define wrath from a biblical perspective. Last week I mentioned there's two different kinds of wrath when it comes to God. There is passive wrath. Passive wrath, I would argue that the entire world is starting to experience right now. Passive wrath means God withdraws his presence and says, have it your way. I call it the Burger King judgment. Have it your way. God said, you guys want to sin? Let me show you what happens when you do that. He pulls back. If you remember, God is the light. He pulls back the light, lets the darkness start to reign. See, if, if, if we'll recognize the, that of everything that comes, all the consequences that come when evil starts to, to rise in our nation and in our world. It's meant to wake us up. It's meant to wake us up so that we recognize that there are some consequences to the lack of God's presence. He wants us to come back to the light. But if you ignore that first stage of passive wrath, then he's going to go to the stage two of passive wrath, where he said, okay, have it your way. You want to follow Satan? Satan, have Adam. Bible says that um, a person who is in sin, you turn him over to Satan. That's what that means. You just, God just removes his protection now. And you come under the full onslaught of the kingdom of darkness. Again, this is mercy. It may not sound like mercy, but it's mercy. God is trying to draw you back to him. Because the next part of wrath, you don't want to experience. This is the active wrath. That's fire and brimstone. Direct judgment. That's where you start seeing famine, earthquake, fire from the sky. Active wrath and judgment. It was interesting this week as I was at work. We had a, a slower period in the emergency department. I was at my computer and I was starting to work at the outline for this, this message. And, some, and, and the doctor actually came up behind me. He was watching me type and just, you know, kind of had my earbuds in. I'm just kind of going to town. And, and he was reading that, and he's like, oh, judgment. That sounds like it's going to be a pleasant sermon. And somebody over on the end said, God doesn't judge. I said, hmm, I guess Sodom and Gomorrah didn't get the memo. <laughs> I guess the flood, knowing the flood, they didn't get that memo. I guess the entire book of Revelation, John, he didn't get that memo either. God indeed judges. He's a good father. He has to judge. If you have an older brother or sister who's beating you up on a daily basis, and you go to your father and say, hey, hey, Bobby is beating me up. He's making fun of me. He's taking my toys. He's doing all this kind of stuff. And your father pats you on the head and says, that's just Bobby being Bobby. Just let Bobby be Bobby. That's not a loving father. A loving father is going to bring discipline in that case. Because not only for the sake of this child over here, but for the sake of little Bobby. 
Bobby needs to be brought under heel so he doesn't go into a life of crime and end up in prison. That is a loving father. So God does indeed have to judge sometimes. He doesn't want to initiate wrath, but he will when he has to. And when God is about to initiate active wrath, particularly when it involves total destruction, like we just talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, he will remove his people first. The second act, example of God snatching away a person is in the example of Elijah. In the latter half of 1 Kings, early part of 2 Kings, we read about the prophet Elijah's ministry. And in 2 Kings, it talks about him being taken directly to heaven. Now, Elijah was very, very zealous for God. He faced multiple evil kings and queens during the course of his ministry. He was under a constant threat of death. Then it came time to pass the torch to a new prophet named Elisha. And this is what happened. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, it says, As they, Elijah and Elisha, were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. That's where you get the term chariots of fire, if you've ever heard that. Now, Elijah, at this time in his ministry, he wasn't in any particular danger at that moment that God takes him directly to heaven. Elijah was taken directly to heaven because of his faithfulness to God. Under extreme pressure, threat of death his entire life, God took him away. So that in the second example of people being raptured, <coughs> excuse me, we see that God will snatch us away to reward faithfulness. You also see this again in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram is allowed to rescue Lot and his entire family, to remove them from that destruction. Because God does not want his people involved in the act of wrath when it comes to that, that complete and total annihilation of those who are rebelling against him. So that gives us a little bit of a signal as to the timing of the rapture. Let's consider the prophetic timeline where it stands right now. We are on the precipice of what is called the tribulation. Tribulation has two parts. First part is the, the, simply the tribulation. Lasts about three and a half years. Has two different series, or yeah, two different series of judgments where the earth is beginning to experience the wrath of God in a partial sense. You have seven seals and seven trumpet judgments that will occur during those first three and a half years. And after those are over, what is known as the Great Tribulation starts. That's a tribulation on steroids. For another three and a half years, there's a series of seven bowl judgments. And if you read the bowl judgments, they are total. They affect the entire planet. So I would submit to you based on my study of the scripture and Christian thought for over a century now that the rapture has to take place before the great tribulation. And again, I think that because the seal judgments are partial. In fact, apart from the sixth seal, they're all largely invisible. In the, in the, in the sense that we don't really see them, but we see the consequences on earth. 
The first four trumpet judgments are also partial. They deal with one-third of the earth. Only the fifth uh, trumpet does a judgment go global. That's with the demonic insects that come up and, and sting the unbelievers. But it doesn't result in death, even though people wish they would die. And although it's global, it doesn't kill anybody directly. So the sixth trumpet judgment releases a massive army of supernatural beings who kill a third of humanity that's left. And the seventh trumpet introduces the beginning of the bowl judgments. And again, the bowl judgments, they affect the entire earth. The full wrath of God is poured out upon all those remaining. So if we use the principle that God has not appointed us to wrath, then we know that the rapture is going to occur before the great tribulation. So that's the timing of the rapture, some point before the great tribulation. And most likely, so nobody thinks I'm arguing against what the assembly of God believes, um, it's, I believe it's actually going to get, or before we get too far into the seal judgments. Applying the principle, again, that God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, I'm hoping and believing for the rapture to occur before the second seal, where World War III breaks out and kills a lot of people all over the world. So that's the timing of the rapture. It's going to occur probably during the tribulation, in the very early part of the tribulation, probably before the rise of the Antichrist coming into power. So let's talk about the qualifications to be part of the rapture. There are some qualifications there. After I turned my life toward Christ, I attended new believers classes and men's study groups and all that kind of thing. And it was taught to all, us that all Christians will be raptured at the time of the rapture when it comes. All Christians will go and meet Jesus in the clouds. I still believe that to this day. But I think we need to button down a little of what we call a Christian. Because all kinds of people are calling themselves Christians, but you don't see it at all in their lives. The enemy has dragged that term Christian through the mud so much that no one outside of Bible-believing Christians in the family of faith really knows what it means anymore. Let me give you a few examples. There are actually Christian swingers out there. If you don't know what a swinger is, it's married couples that share their spouses with other married couples. That's an oxymoron. You can't be a Christian swinger. You can be one, or you can be the other. You can't be both. You just can't. Pick a lane. There are people out there who call themselves pro-choice Christians when it comes to abortion rights, up to and during the delivery of a term child. Again, Pick a lane. You can't be rabidly pro-choice and be a Christian. You just can't. You can't be so, again. You can't be pro-murder and be for God. You just you can't have both. People identifying themselves as practicing homosexuals and gay marriages as Christ, and Christian. You can't be both. And before you think I'm being a bigot toward homosexuals, I would say the same thing about straight people living together out of marriage, with no intention of being married. Pick a lane. You can't be both. And I don't say this because I like to hear myself rant at people. I say this because I love you. And I want you to be saved. The point is, not for me to pick on people who sin differently than I do. 
right? I mean, I'm not picking on people for that reason. Because all have sinned, including me, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My point is, is that when you embrace a lifestyle or some social justice fad that is not biblical, and even so, not just unbiblical, but what the Bible calls evil or an abomination, you cannot also claim the name of Christ. If Christ went to the cross to save us from those things, and you openly embrace them, you can't call yourself Christian. If there's a hyphen somewhere in the description of your Christianity, then it's not real Christianity. Christianity is about following Jesus and his teachings, period. But it's not just my opinion. It's Jesus' opinion. He dedicated an entire chapter of the Bible to identify the kind of person who will meet him in the air when the trumpet sounds. If you look at Matthew 25, Jesus tells two parables and gives a teaching to show us this. In Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, he gives the parable of the ten virgins. Ten virgins holding ten lampstands, waiting for the bridegroom, which is Jesus. They are to keep their lampstands going, lit, and show the light of the bridegroom to the people. But five of those virgins were wise and kept them going, and five were foolish. The wise virgins kept, virgins kept their wicks trimmed, their oil full, and stood watching and waiting for the bridegroom to come. Again, faithful Christians, living lives dedicated to God, his truth in the Bible showing through their lives and letting their light shine out into the darkness. But five of the virgins were lazy. They let their oil run out and their wicks burn down. And when the bridegroom came, they could not light their lamps. And the bridegroom, which is again Jesus, cast them away from him. The next parable tells of a landowner who goes on a journey and leaves his business into the hands of three different servants. He gives each of them a sum of money. When he returns, he finds that two out of the three servants have doubled what he has given them. He's put what he is giving them to work and doubled, and they gave it back to him, and he gave them great praise for, for working for him while he was gone. The last servant, though, buried the money. He was a closet Christian. He didn't do anything with his salvation, or the money in this case. And the master was very angry and threw him into outer darkness for hiding his treasure and being lazy. And again, I, I encourage you to read Matthew 25. The third story tells of God separating people at the judgment. He separates them to the right and to the left. To those on the right, he praises the people who have served him during their lives. They've cared for the sick. They've fed the hungry. They've visited the prisoner. They've helped widows and orphans. They've done everything that Jesus asked them to do. But to those on the left who didn't do anything for God during their lives. They chose to hide and bury their treasure. He curses them and casts them out of his kingdom. Are you starting to understand 
There's no such thing as a closet or a part-time Christian. So with all this in mind, who are the Christians? Is it the person who said a prayer at 14 at a camp and largely ignored God's sins? Is it the person who claims Christ as Savior by, by looking at his or her life or listening to their language you can never tell? After all, it's out of the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. And a heart that has been renewed and regenerated by Jesus should not be constantly cussing, and especially cursing his name. I can't tell you how many Christians I hear for people who say they're Christians at work who constantly use Jesus' name as a curse. My friends, those things should not be. The time's growing very short before the th this thing called the rapture takes place. I'm trying to prepare you for it today. It's incredibly close. But we have to be aware that there's another kind of snatching away in the Bible. This phrase is used another time in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the seed. In this parable, the seed represents the word of God and salvation. In verse 12 of Luke chapter 8, it talks about a, ski, a seed scattered on the hard path, representing the person who does not allow the word to penetrate and change their hearts. So the devil comes and snatches it away from them. And that's where I'm afraid many are in the church. We've allowed this world to change what it means to be a Christ follower. And it's, we're in danger of making ourselves ineligible to be caught up with Jesus. So I would ask you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready? If that trumpet were to sound right now, how many would disappear and how many would be standing here in shock? Earlier in this message, we established there's two reasons that God is going to snatch us away in the rapture. The first is to escape his wrath. And the second is as a reward for our faithfulness. And since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we should expect him to use that same criteria he used back then to right now, even more so for the Christian who is supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you search us and know us this morning. Lord, I know this is a hard message. I know that, that it, it pricks us in the heart. It kicks us in the teeth. It makes us angry. But Father, it's the truth of your word. Like it or not, it's just the way it is. As John Calvin said, it's, if the preacher does not first preach to himself, it's better for him to, to trip and fall and break his neck on the way up to the pulpit than to preach one word of that sermon. And I feel that today, both in the preparation and in the giving of this message. It's deeply convicting for me as well. So I would ask, Father, that you... Search and know all of us this morning that we would allow the Holy Spirit free access to our hearts, our minds, our opinions, whatever, Father, that may be standing against your Holy Spirit having complete and total control over our hearts and minds. 
And Father God, we just ask for your blessing to be upon us, Lord, during these last days. Help us to shine the light of Jesus. Help us to be bold enough and have enough courage to stand for truth, no matter what it may cost us. Because the persecution is coming and is already here in many cases. So give us the courage to stand for you, no matter what the cost, Lord.